0: I don't need to tell you this, but sometimes the going gets tough, right? And we run into these trials. Uh, if you're here today, and obviously you are, <laughs> uh, there, there's really three groups of people here. There's one group of us in here that are going, say, through a trial. We've heard even some of that this morning. There, there are some who are coming out of trials. You've just gotten through one and you're going, phew, I'm so glad that's over with. And we're moving along and the, the, the clouds are breaking open and the sky is blue. And some of you are trucking along going things are great and you're about to, guess what, probably go into a trial here before too long. In the hardest of situations, I want you to know, and I want you to take from this morning's time in the Word, that when the going gets tough, when when this hard stuff happens, there is hope for the hopeless because God is working on us and he is using these things for our good, right? That's the basis of that beautiful promise in Romans 8.28, that he is working all things together for good. Who? To those who love him and to those who are called according to his purposes, which is believers, that's us who are in Christ, right? And he is working and he, he's going to continue to work. He began a good work in you and he's going to see it through, right? Philippians 1.6. So this morning we want to talk about this process. I want to talk about the power of trials. I didn't look at a bulletin. Is there an outline in there? Did, okay. So you've got an outline in your bulletin. Uh, the trials that come our way are used by God in amazing and powerful ways to sanctify us and to prepare us for his presence. It's not that we ever seek trials we don't need to seek trials. It's not something that we do. But as they do come our way, we do not need to fear or tremble because God is working all these things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes. And we understand how God uses trials in our lives And and the nature of the trials is we start to get that theology down in our midst. We're able not only to endure the trials, but to flourish with great joy even in the midst of trials. So open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of 1 Peter, the first epistle of Peter, chapter 1. We're going to spend some time this morning in verses 6 through 9. And as we do that, I want us to consider the reality of trials. That is, what do they look like? And what do they accomplish? I want us to do this with the purpose in mind. And the purpose is this so that we can learn and grow into rejoicing in the midst of any hard times that come our way because God is working in our lives and he's working through our lives. Let's commit this time to prayer. Father, thank you for your word and opens up and, and and sees the thoughts and intentions of our very hearts and shows us the areas that we need to work on and encourages us uh, to move forward by your grace. And Lord, as we, we study this passage on this somewhat difficult subject, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be strengthened and that we might be encouraged to follow you closer with each 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 moment of our life, and that we might be able to rejoice in what you have done and what you are doing, even in the times of trials. In your son's name, amen. So you got your Bibles open. Follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. <clears throat> Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Peter begins with the words, in this, you see that there? He says, in this... You greatly rejoice. And what he's doing there is he's pointing back to the near context where he has just done this great doxology where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven. Isn't that cool? He says, look at what God's done. He has caused, don't miss the the tense of the the verb there. He has caused us to be born again. And he's given us this fantastic inheritance, which is imperishable. It won't rot. It's undefiled. It won't spot. And it won't fade away. It ain't gonna blot. You know, this thing is great. And be encouraged by that. And even as you understand that now, you're greatly rejoicing in that, even though, boom, boom trials come your way okay these readers are no stranger to difficulty right i mean the readers of this epistle that peter writes are aliens who are scattered abroad they're experiencing very difficult times and they can rejoice because god has caused them to be born again they have this fantastic inheritance it's reserved for them in heaven it can't be taken away Because it's protected by who? The power of God. In this you greatly rejoice, Peter writes. Then in verse 6. I love that he he says you greatly rejoice. Not just in this you rejoice. He says you greatly rejoice. How in the world do they do that? Think about that for a little bit. This is not, uh, you're rejoicing. This is a, you even in the midst of everything are greatly rejoicing. The superlatives added on there. There are many here in the middle of a trial. Like I said, some will be coming in, some are going out. And the trial you find yourself into today may be the worst experience of your life that you feel like you've had till this point. And you may feel like turning and running away. You may feel like you're about to crash and burn. You may feel like you can't take it for one second more. You may feel alone in it. You may even be tempted to feel seemingly abandoned by God. But can I tell you this morning, as we come to this, that this is going to pass too. All right? This too will pass. Can I tell you that there is a way that you can rejoice, nay, and I said nay, nay, greatly rejoice. Not just like happy rejoice, this is greatly rejoice, even in the middle of it. Can I tell you that God is with you, that he will never forsake you, and that the trial is the proof that God wants to work mightily in your life right now? And can I tell you that there's real hope, no matter how hopeless you may feel right now? If you want to rejoice greatly in your trial, there are two realizations that are absolutely imperative. You must realize, number one, what a trial is, and number two, what a trial accomplishes. And that's really our outline today. Let's begin first by looking at the anatomy of a trial. That's point number one on your outline. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, <laughs> even though now Peter is writing to a people who are in the oven, the heat is intense, they're being poked by the fork, and the situation at, at face value seems kind of bleak. Now, he says, in this, even now, even though you're going through this, you greatly rejoice. And we have a tendency, folks, don't we, to write this off, this joy, right? To write it off as something that's just kind of merely inner joy. So it's a joy that's like, yeah, I'm in the middle of a trial. I'm really happy. You know, wouldn't believe what I'm going through right now. It's hard. And, and hey, I'm not minimizing trials. I'm not minimizing the tears that come with them or anything. I don't want you to take this like that. But what I want you to understand is, to the extent that we can focus upon what God has done and what God is doing through his work. We would be able to actually have joy in the middle of our trials too. Along with mixed with tears at times and things like that. Sometimes as we just relegated it to this, you know, you need to have joy. I'm like, yeah, I got joy. I got joy in my trial. You know, it's like, I got the joy, 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 joy. Down. You know, we're just like, I got it. I don't see it, but I got it, right? This is more than that, okay? And I, I, I don't want it to, and there's a sense where I, I wanted to fight it being more than that when I come to this text and, and exegete it, because it just seems so antithetical to everything I want to do in a trial. So I want to kind of explain it away. I'm going to get in the Greek and find it out. You know what I mean? What Peter, Peter is writing here to these Christians, says, says, you have a, a great, you greatly rejoice. You have an observable joy. It's not manufactured. It's sincere. There are three basic Greek words in the New Testament that are used to express human joy. There are ten in total, I think. Uh, one of them has to do mostly with how your health and your happiness is. That's the kind of joy really anybody can have when times are good, right? There's another one that's kind of more, even more circumstantial than that. It's a subjective feeling of joy. It's kind of like uh, ball game joy. You know, your team won, and you're all happy. And I will forget coming back after going to an A&M Nebraska game and uh, hearing a guy on the radio, a student being interviewed, and he said, this is the best day of my life. That's that kind of joy. It's a sad statement, but it's a... <laughs> I'm sorry that's the best day of your life, son. The third one is, is, is an outward d- demonstration of joy and exaltation. It's the word agalio. It's... Uh, and that's the one that's used here. It's more than just this inward, can't see it, not expressed thing. It's, it's, it has an outward demonstration even with it of joy and exaltation. You greatly rejoice at what? What? Because you understand, number one, what God has done. That's the previous context. And then you understand, number two, point number two on our outline, what that trial is going to accomplish. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. So Peter explains how they're able to do that in the middle of this difficulty, and he gives us really helpful instruction for us as we face our difficulties. And here, Peter, in just a few words, gives really helpful theology, a theology of trials that that should be really helpful to every one of us because we all encounter this. In verse 6, he gives us this anatomy of the trial, some things we need to remember about trials to put it all in proper perspective. The first thing that Peter reminds in point, point letter A on your outline is that trials are temporary they're temporary in this verse six you even though now here's the phrase for a little while don't you love the little phrase for a little while I'm so glad that's there it's one of my fav- one of my favorite and most comforting passages in the New Testament 2 Corinthians 4 verses 16 through 18 it's a, a beacon of light when, when things aren't easy it reminds me among other things that these trials, like it says here, are just for a little while. Listen to these familiar words. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For, and here it is, ready? Momentary, I love that, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look at the things which are we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal and the things which are not seen are eternal it doesn't feel momentary, it doesn't feel like for a little while when you're in the middle of a trial, right? but the word of God the inerrant word of God says it's for a little while you say, well I've got, I know somebody they've got in a wheelchair for the whole rest of their life momentary right? I mean, that's hard. I'm not minimizing that. But think about this for a second. There will be a day for that believer in Christ, right? When he is freed from those wills. There is a day coming when we are freed from the pain of a relational problem or financial stresses or the hardship of a, a disease or something like that. When we are seen as we really are, when he makes us, he glorifies us and brings us into his presence. And that, my friends, is for eternity. 70, 80 years you might have here, Right? That's nothing when you graph it on the timeline of eternity. It's all momentary. It's all for a little while when you think about it mathematically, practically. They're temporary. They'll go away. It's not the end of the world. God is still on his throne. Do not despair. So many of us, we we are tempted to fret and wring our hands. And sometimes if we're not careful, we could get bitter or begin to even blame God. And in effect, what we're saying in those situations by our our response to them is we're saying, God is mean, right? How could he do this for me? He must be mean. That's what that question says. You're saying that God's unjust. I I deserve better than this. No, we don't, do we? We might be saying that God's a liar. He, He doesn't cause all things to work together for good. God is not mean, God is not unjust, and God is not a liar. There was a lady in our church in Kansas who, uh, when I'd go around visiting, especially the widows, she would be the one I'd always put on last, always last. And the reason was, after visiting six or seven widows, sometimes you'd be a little discouraged at the end of it because there's so much, you know, needs and work and all that that needs to be done and come alongside. And Lena Isaac, I'd always put last because... I would leave out of there from being with her, walking on air. You know what I mean? Now, it wasn't because her life was perfect, okay? She had kids, mentally and physically disabled. She had a husband who barely could, even at the time, when he was still alive, could barely do anything. And then he got Parkinson's, and then he died and left her all alone. No finances, no, none of that kind of stuff. She's barely making it, barely surviving. And in every way that the world measures success or happiness, she didn't have it. But what Lena always had was she had great joy. And I never will forget the phrase that she always used when we would talk about it and pray together and all that kind of stuff. She would just look at me and pastoring the pastor, as it were, and just say, you know, this too shall pass. What what was she saying? It's temporary. It's momentary light affliction. uh, I'm going to be all right because my God has caused me to be born again. He's given me inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, won't be taken away. can't be taken away. It's protected by the power of God, and he has allowed this thing to come into my life because he's going to do something with it. He's going to accomplish stuff with it. I love that. Warren Risley wrote, he said, when God permits his children to go through the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. I like that. Trials are temporary. That's not all. Point letter B. Uh, Peter notes that he points out that they're necessary. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary. Don't miss that point. Like the heat is necessary to turn that glob of flour and sugar and oil into a cake. Trials are necessary to grow and mature us into something that is delightful to God and good to ourselves and for ministry to others. Sometimes trials are necessary to discipline us when when we're sinning. Psalm 119, 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Now I keep your word. Sometimes trials are necessary to keep us from sinning. Like Paul's thorn in his flesh where he says, I have this thing to torment me to keep me from exalting myself. Sometimes trials are used to help us to grow and mature. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Just notice for now that they are necessary sometimes. Okay, So they're they're temporary and they're necessary. Let us see. They're also varied. Verse 6 again. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Various is the same word used in James chapter 1, which means multicolored. They come in all shapes, sizes, colors, whatever. Could be the loss of a loved one, could be cancer or a physical, other physical ailment, could be a financial loss of a job, could be relational, a spouse situation, a child. When I was a kid, I went through a phase where I liked to work with leather and make stuff, little wallets and stuff like that. There were so many tools that you could get that would make different shapes, and you'd, you'd get all these tons of tools, man. You never had all of them you wanted with different shapes and sizes, and all these each tool left a very specific kind of dent or impression or hole in the leather. If you wanted to make a punch so you could you know, kind of sew the thing together, use this one. If you wanted to make a design on it, you'd use a combination of several other ones or letters or special shapes. One tool did not do the job. If you really wanted to make something beautiful and wonderful, you'd use tools of various kinds. That's what God's doing with us. He uses trials kind of like that. There are different things that come our way to teach us and grow us in different ways. One kind of trial may teach us to rely on him for uh, provision that we're nervous about. Another may teach us to forgive others like he has forgiven us. Still another might be teaching us patience. Others might be helping us keep our priorities straight. Still others may be helping us to fix our theology and on and on and on. A lot of different tools that God uses. There are a variety of trials and there are a variety of effects for these trials. Number four, letter four, D. He says they're distressing. Again, verse 6, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed. Wait a minute. Greatly rejoicing and distress st- Can those things cohabitate together? Apparently so, right? So it's not like we just, gonna you know, do the old, you know, 1950s religion where you just kind of fake it, you know, and just kind of paint over it, and now like, everything looks good, and we're great joy. And we're not going to do the 1950s. 90s, where it's all about me, you know, I'm just going to be, I'm distressed all the time. Please, can everybody come around me? There is a distress that comes from it. It's real, it's practical, it's everyday, but there's a great joy that comes with it. We do not minimize the distress. These things are hard. I don't need to tell you that. The verb distress there in verse 6 means to experience pain or grief. I'll give you a couple of examples where else it was used. One of them was in the garden of Gethsemane, the way Jesus felt. Was that a little stressed? Was that a little distressed in his soul? Was he sweat-like, great drop, drops of blood? I would say so. Another place that's used in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 to talk about people who, who had loved ones died, who did not have eternal life and grieved. That's a real stress. <laughs> a lot of distress. That's what trials are. They can be immensely difficult. They can come in many shapes and sizes. They're necessary in our lives, but know that they're only for a little while. And in them, you can greatly rejoice because of what God has done and what He will do. That brings us to the better part of the outline, letter number number two, the accomplishments of the trial. We saw what a trial is, Now let's look at what God's up to in it. Okay, this is so important because it's what really helps you and I to view our trial. Not as an enemy, but as a friend, okay? It's a focus shift. We're moving our focus really from trial to triumph. From uh, temporary light affliction to eternal way to glory. Look at it. It Peter continues in verses 7 through 9 by talking about the purposes of trials. Let's read those verses again. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. There are three major accomplishments of trials that I see here in this part of the text. Number one. They prove. They prove our faith. Okay? Verse 7a, so that the proof of your faith, stop there, it begins, the, verse 7 begins with a little Greek word henna, which is a, 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 when used with a verb in a subjunctive tense, it indicates purpose. Here's the purpose of what's going on. And it's not anything we have to wonder, what's the purpose? Here, he's going to tell us. The purpose is there's a proof to your faith, partially, that's part of the purpose, the word proof there is dokumion. It's a noun form of dokumazo, which has to do with testing for the purpose of approval. I absolutely love this Greek word. If you're going to learn Greek, start with this one. This is a great word. I, use, I think I used this one the very first sermon I ever preached here in um, April of 2013. And it's just a beautiful picture because what it is, is, it's a picture of this trial and the fierceness and all that that comes with it. But it has this proving aspect of it. It's not punishment. It's not God beating you up. It's not God's mean. He has you under thumb. It's not a warlike thing. Nothing like that. What he's doing is he is taking you and I, and he's putting us into the furnace so that you and I can be more and more like him. So that our faith can be proved out in practical life and shown to be real. The way that they used to purify gold is very, very interesting. What they would do, as you know, probably, is they would put gold in a a container. They would heat it up and heat it up and heat it up. And what happened is it heated up. It wasn't pure right out of the ground, right? So the the impurities would start to rise to the top. And if you looked at it, you go, well, that's kind of shiny gold stuff, but it's mostly this black gunk on top of it, right? And the, the goldsmith would stand above that pot, and he would take a rod, and he would screed off the junk, and then it looked pretty good. Hey, this gold's looking pretty good. I think I'll make a ring out. No, not yet. Here, let's put some more heat on it. He heat it up again. And you know what? The more heat he added, more and more dross, more and more impurities would rise to the surface and be eliminated. And and the goldsmith knew his work was done when he could look down into that vat of gold after he screeded off that last little bit of dross, and he could see perfectly and clearly his reflection in it. I love that picture. That's what God's doing with us, right? He's working on us, molding us, shaping us, transforming us, using trials at times to to turn us into children that not only bear his image but reflect his image clearer and clearer in progressive sanctification. a beautiful word. Refining, tested by fire, proven. John Rippon, I don't know if you know his name, He was a pastor of London's Metropolitan Tabernacle before Charles Spurgeon. He wrote this. When through fiery trials thy pathway lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. It's beautiful. Peter says this refining process is even more valuable than refined gold. It's more precious than gold, which is perishable, he says in verse 7b. And it's profitable. Why is it profitable? Look at this. You see it in here. Look at your outline. First, it's profitable because of endurance, okay? You can go to James 1. And that's a great study on this, this matter. James 1, verses 2, 4, 2 through 4 says, uh, "'Consider it all joy, my brethren, "'when you encounter various trials, "'knowing that the testing of your faith "'produces endurance.'" And endurance has its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Teleos, uh, mature, grown up, complete, whole, sound, lacking in nothing. It builds endurance. Second thing trials produce is evidence. Evidence, that's a proof of your faith as well. Uh, Paul, or not, uh, the apostles in, in Acts chapter 5 uh, were identified with Christ, right? They say, I can tell the way they talk, I can tell that they've been with him. And because of that identification, because of they preached the same thing he preached and, and all that kind of stuff, they were constantly being chased down, right? To the point where they were uh, being flogged, ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus, put in jail. And I love Acts chapter 5, verse 41, where it says they were rejoicing because they'd con- been considered worthy of to suffer shame for his name. <laughs> you know, somebody in our office or something like that. Uh, he says, oh, you're a Christian? That's silly stuff. And we're like, oh, you know. Please don't make fun of our Christianity. You know. No, no. We stand for Christ. I'm not saying being ugly. I'm not saying being rude or anything like that. But we have this most amazing thing in Christ. Salvation. That that other person also needs. And rather than be quiet little church mouse in the corner, we should also care enough and invest in lives enough where at some point we have the right to talk to them and the relationship to talk to them about Christ and what he's done so that they may know this joy inexpressible too. Many Christians have struggled with doubts, wondering whether or not their faith is real. Trials are beautiful times to see faith. The concept of faith and belief occur three times in our little passage on trials. And because of the presence of faith as well as the lack of it, it's most evident when trials or storms come our way. Look at verse 8. See the element of faith here. Although you have not seen him, (laughs) you know about him and you believe in him, but you haven't seen him, you still love him. And though you do not see him now, you didn't and you don't now, you believe in him, faith. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, too awesome for words is what that means, right? And full of glory, faith, 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 faith. So there's endurance, there's evidence. third thing it uses it for, trials for is evangelism. I love when Paul and Silas were put in prison. Sounds silly to say that, but these guys were put in prison for preaching the truth, right? And, uh, you know, you might be going, well, that's a trial. If you were in their shoes prior to the earthquake, prior to all that stuff that happened after it, you'd be going, it's a trial. God, I'm following you, I'm doing what you want. Why the heartache? That wasn't their attitude, by the way. What were they doing when they were in prison? Do you remember that? <coughs> Excuse me, Acts 16. They're like singing, right? Just that if you're a preacher singing, it ain't good. But, you know, anyway, they were up to it. So they're singing along here and all this stuff. You know the story. The earthquake comes. The jailer thinks, surely because the doors are open and all that stuff, everybody's out of here. Paul cries out and says, hey, we're all here. Don't worry. You know, he's about to kill himself. And it became an opportunity for gospel. And they sat down. They broke bread with the man. They talked to him about Christ. They presented the gospel. He got saved. His family got saved. And the church of Philippi just starts exploding with people and what God's doing. It's an opportunity for evangelism. (coughs) It's amazing to watch non-believers watch a Christian go through a trial in a biblical way. Because that's one of the times when everything's great. Say you're the top earner. In your company and all that kind of stuff. People go, well, I, I could love a God that gives me all of that, you know. That's just his circumstances and he relates it to this God idea. But they see you go through a hard time. A loss. A physical thing. Injustices. And they watch you r- respond with grace. Confidence. Peace that passes all comprehension. And joy inexpressible greatly rejoicing and it, it, whether they say it or not they're looking they're going what does that guy have you know, these times are so great opportun- so such great opportunities for evangelism many are the times when i've gone through the hard times of my life that somebody came up and said how some unbeliever what how did you respond that way and, you know it's like oh i'm so glad you asked right let's talk Want to get some coffee? You get coffee, I'm going to get something else. I don't like coffee. Next point, edification. God uses our trials to help with edification, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. So that, check it out, we will be able to comfort those who are in Any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See that? There's a strengthening of the body, edification of one another, members of church, and things like that, where you have been down a path, and you've seen the comfort of God in your life, and you can come along somebody else, put your arm around them, not pretend to have it all together, but just say, look at what God has done in my situation. He's going to do something in your situation to bring you through this thing, and I stand here with you, and I will comfort you, and I will be here, and I will pray for you, and I'll help you in any way I can. Trials also producing in us a set of better priorities because we're forced to focus on what's really important, and that's the next point, expectation, we'll call it. Hebrews 10.34, as the writer of Hebrews talks to a scattered and persecuted audience, he says, you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession than a lasting one. You know, all the stuff starts to get really, what's the little hymn that the things of this world grow strangely dim? That's the point. You know how important it is that car is shiny and has all the right stuff and the house is perfect and the yard is great and the kids are absolutely, you know, everybody's looking up to you at the right job and all that stuff until you find out that really doesn't matter too much. It's, it's really, it's, it's, it's a shell game. Finally, trials bring about excellence. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, talks about the fruit of tribulation. It says, not only this, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance brings about proven character, and proven character brings about hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. When we were in Nazareth in, in 2010 we had the opportunity to vi- visit a first century village there that, that they have at Nazareth um, while we were there they showed us how grain was being thrust which at the time was particularly interesting because it was in Kansas and it was done quite differently with combines and stuff like that but what they did was they took this big heavy piece of wood and they gouged it with chisels and they crammed sharp rocks and pieces of iron and whatever they could get into this thing just crammed it in there and hammered it in And then they wet that thing to make it, number one, heavier, number two, so it'd swell and hold in those pieces of rock and iron and all that kind of stuff. And then they would tie that apparatus to a donkey who would drag it over the wheat and the pressure of that with the stones and the iron would separate the grain from the chaff. The Romans called that piece of equipment a tribulum. (laughs) That's where we get our English word tribulation from. Trials. Peter is reminding us this morning that no thresher ever operated his tribulum with the purpose of ruining his grain, right? I mean, God is not sitting here trying to beach up. The farmer just wants to cull out the precious grain and purify it from the parts which were not valuable or desirable, and so it is with God. As the bits of this world and the flesh are extracted from us, we are made more and more fit for heaven. You know, if you were to go out today and iron uh, mine some iron ore from the earth and get you a little chunk of iron ore straight from the earth, you know, what's it worth? Uh, let's say five bucks, okay? Probably not worth that. But if you take that same chunk of iron ore and you heat it and you shape it and you mold it into horseshoes, all of a sudden you can make several horseshoes out of that. It might be worth, you know, 10, 20 bucks or something. Well, if you take that same chunk, but instead of making horseshoes, you decide with more, refi- more refining and more detail you could craft it into needles, little pieces of steel. If you did that, it'd be worth $3,285. I actually did the math on this. If you took the same bar of iron and you crafted it into springs for fine watches with a great deal of engineering and precision, it would be as worth, that same little chunk would be worth $25, or $250,000. What's the point? What makes the difference? What makes the difference with that iron ore is simply the amount of heat and processing the iron was subjected to. Trials continue to shape us. They continue to mold us and to make us most valuable, more usable for God's kingdom agenda. There's another purpose to these difficult times. Letter C, they bring praise. Verse 7. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this may freak you out a little bit, but the focus of the praise and glory and honor here is not (coughs) on the Christian's praise of God, but it's God praising them, right, at this point. Matthew 25, verses 21 through 23 is well done, good and faithful service. That's what's being happening right here, too. Now, understand that any praise, glory, or honor that we get, what do we do with it? We instantly or what? It goes back to God. It's reflected back to God. We couldn't have done it on our own. It's all you that did it, right? And like the crowns in Revelation 4, we lay all our rewards, all our praise at his feet, and we give him glory. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. And then finally, the last purpose in trials as they prepare us for our future. Verse 9. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You know, salvation, a lot of people get confused on this. Salvation has a past, present, and future tense, right? Um, we tend to think of salvation, use that word rather flippantly, almost like it's just justification. We know that salvation goes all the way from chosen before the foundations of the earth and all that kind of stuff to through glorification, right? But there's a sense even in our own life where it has a past, present, and future where in the, you know, in the past, at the point of justification, I was saved from the penalty of sin, right? And even now, as I'm progressively being sanctified, I'm being saved from the power of sin in my life. And then ultimately, at glorification, I'm going to be saved from the... Not even the presence of sin is going to be around. That's going to be really cool. And so you're saying the outcome of your faith as you go through this stuff is that you're continually being saved up to that ultimate point where salvation reaches its full fruition at glorification. We see our salvation made complete when Christ comes again. There's a sense, folks, where our trials make us fit for heaven as God shapes our priorities and our character and our perspective. And that's really the issue that we've got to keep in mind. Look back, we've been born again, we have been given this great inheritance which won't rot, spot, or blot, right? And it's being protected by God. And even as we're, we're going through the rest of the life that he gives us, being used by him on this planet, prior to, just, prior to glorification, he is continuing to mold and shape us. And he's making us more and more conformed to his image and changing us so that our priorities are now lined up with his priorities, that we reflect him better in our character. And our perspective is totally different. It's not just on the pain of the trial but it's on what God's trying to accomplish in me, through me, and around me by the trial so trials in a sense are our friend they prove our faith they bring praise they prepare us for eternity that's the power of trials and knowing to the extent that we actually know that and appropriate that knowledge into our mind, our heart we can greatly rejoice reformers, we were talking about that earlier, reformers who were burned at the stake in the 1500s had a practice that was quite odd to most people watching, I'm sure. When they were paraded to the spot of their execution, they'd walk up to the stake that they were gonna be tied to, burned, or whatever, and as they were about to be tied to it, they turned to it and they would kiss it. They would kiss the stake. Why? They saw it totally differently. You and I see, from an earthly perspective, we're not careful. We see that stake merely as, how oh, it's going to be painful. It's so, unjust. you know, why doesn't God just step in and boom, release me and all this kind of stuff. And they see it as God's word is going to go forth and through the blood of the martyrs. Uh, I'm going to be in his presence soon. So take my life if that's what you want to do. I'll just kiss the stake. It was the instrument that would bring him into the presence of God. Can you greatly rejoice this morning in the trial that you're in? That's the question. Can you and I do that? Or the one that we're about to be in? Can you and I look past what is seen and focus on him who is not seen and what he has done that cannot be changed and what he is doing that is absolutely changing us? can we greatly rejoice because we recognize that God is at work in our lives and he is molding and shaping us into his image and using that then to impact the generation that he's placed us in. That, my friends, is true faith. This too shall pass, whatever it is. It's going to pass. I hope it passes fast for you. I really do. But I hope it doesn't pass one second before what's accomplished Needs to be accomplished through it. And you, around you, or whatever God's up to. And I don't, have, I don't pretend to know what God's up to with your trial. And then one day soon, after encountering a life of trials and joys and all the things that he has for us, one day soon we'll hear those precious words, well done. Good and faithful servant." enter into your rest that's more we'll rest our God is a good God he's not mean our God is a just God he is not unjust and our God is a truth telling God he is not a liar so what we go through he is allowed through his fairness and his goodness and he will work it together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Father, thanks so much for your word. I pray it finds its place in our heart and never leaves. In Christ's name, amen.